You're listening to Travel Bubble with me, Matty Dias. The world's locked down and travelling isn't really an option. So I thought, why not do the next best thing and talk about it? From living all over the world to working as a tour guide, I've seen some amazing places and met some great people. Each week, I'll speak to globetrotters and industry professionals about their travel bubble choices to provide you with post-lockdown inspiration and top travel tips. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Travel Bubble, Are We There Yet? with me, Matty Dias. A big hello wherever you are in the world, from sunny Cornwall, I hope you are well. So, how are you all doing? All is well here in Cornwall, it's a bit wet today, but other than that, things are going well. Um, I've been doing the walking tours, did one today, a very, very wet walking tour, but I think it just, it just added a different dimension to the tour. Um, in Travel Bubble News, we had excellent feedback from episode 21 with Rachel Stratman. Lots of listens and lots of great feedback. We were in loads of different charts this week. So we were in like the travel travel charts in England, in Malaysia, and also in Cyprus as well. I think we were like 59 in Cyprus, which is exactly where I wanted to be. 59th in the charts in Cyprus. So I'm very, very happy with that. If you haven't listened to that episode or you're new to Travel Bubble, you can go back and listen to all our old episodes. All the content is evergreen. So just have a flick through, choose an episode title that you like or someone that you like the look of and give it a listen. You never know, you might meet someone new. You might enjoy it and you might find some, well, you definitely find some travel inspiration going forward. So check that out. This week's episode is, it's fun for all the family, this one. I'm... I want to hear all different sides and all different aspects of travel here on Travel Bubble. And this one um, is great for those listeners who have a bit of a family. Maybe you've got a young family and you think, you listen, but you, you think, oh, well, I can't do that yet. I'll do that in 20 years' time when my kids have grown up or this is what I'll do when I'm retired. But this guy we've got on today, Ian Pillbeam, he quit his job and took his two kids out of school I went travelling around the world and went to like 20 countries, went all over uh, and we'll hear all about that and hear like the difficulties and the practicalities and the logistical problems associated with travelling with kids, like what do you do about homeschooling them, Um, how do you go about like getting the plane tickets and things like that, so he answers all them and he's also, Ian's uh, quite the character as well, He's, he's a very well spoken, he he, he knows what he's talking about, and I really enjoyed this one. He has written a book as well called Are We There Yet? And we are going to be giving away a copy of that book, a signed copy of that book as well, so keep an eye out on our social media for that competition. Remember, Travel Bubble is a free podcast, but if you would like to support us, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can share it with your friends. Maybe you've got a friend who likes traveling, tell them all about Travel Bubble, and follow us and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and if you see an option to rate us maybe you're on apple go and give us a five star rating because it boosts the it boosts our rankings in the algorithms and it promotes us to new listeners and it helps us grow travel bubble and provide even more travel inspiration to those people those new listeners and people worldwide so thank you for doing that in advance got a new five star rating this week Someone said that uh, the Travel Bubble is casually insightful, 
which I'll take as a compliment. Um, yeah, so go and check that out and go and give us a five-star rating while you're there. I'll be back at the end of the interview for a bit more Travel Bubble chat and the old famous Travel Bubble Film Club, so stick around right till the end for that. But without further ado, I will jump into this week's episode, episode 22, Are We There Yet?, with my guest, Ian Pillbeam. So hello Ian, welcome to Travel Bubble. Thanks very much, how are you today, Martin? I'm very good, thank you. Um, how about yourself? Oh, wonderful, thank you. Having a having a book out about something that you, you love to doing is a, a wonderful experience. So yeah, life's treating me very well at the moment, thank you. Yeah, where, where in the world are you right now? So I'm in Edinburgh, uh, in, uh, I like to say sunny Scotland, sometimes is, <laughs> but uh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful part of the world is Edinburgh. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not catching the Scottish accent though, Ian. Well, this this deep Scottish brawl that I've got, I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've uh, I've lived here for 20 years, uh, apart from when I'm not here traveling. Uh, but uh, yeah, I grew up in Lincolnshire, so that's the predominant accent. But you'll find I might throw the odd wee Scottish word in along the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we touched on it uh, uh, briefly there, Ian, but um, why would you make a good guest? Why are you a guest on Travel Bubble? Well, there's a... You might know what the word is for a travel addict. Dromomania is the, the addiction to travel. And uh, that's something that my wife and I discovered, I think, as soon as we met. But the magic moment was a few years ago when we were on holiday with our kids who were seven and nine at the time. And it was just a typical uh, package holiday, southern Turkey funded by Tesco Club card vouchers, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. And we were in a bar one night and I said to the kids, where do you fancy going next? And instead of saying, can we come back here or such like, they said, can we have a think about that, please, Daddy? So I said, of course. That's a dangerous question. (laughs) I know, I know. Well, it ended up being a brilliant question. But uh, uh, the next night, same bar, and they produced the list. A list of piece of paper on it was a list of about 10 countries that they fancied going to next. And each country had an, an animal next to it. So it was Australia kangaroos, Peru llamas, Madagascar lemurs, China panda bears, etc. And we looked at that list, my wife and I, and we thought, wow, we want to go there as well. Yeah. So uh, I then asked a really dangerous question, which was, I wonder if th- there's such a thing as a round-the-world ticket for families. Three weeks after getting back from that holiday, I was negotiating my exit from my well-paid, secure, secure, permanent HR director job uh, and leaving. And we decided to take our kids backpacking around the world for a year, which is what we did. Oh, amazing. Um, So I've got a few questions um, logistically about that, Ian. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll get a bit of background info about yourself first. So... um, Prior to this trip, had you done much travelling? Had you been around? Not as much as I think we needed to. So uh, I did languages as a student, so I'd done a bit bit of Europe travel, and my wife had lived in France for a year when she was 10. Uh, We'd we'd done some foreign holidays, and it was starting to get more exotic. So when the kids were really wee, it it was in the car down to France or Italy. Uh, but then we'd been to Morocco, we'd been to Sri Lanka, we'd been to St. Lucia, although that was very much an all-inclusive type holiday. We couldn't wait to get out of the compound. 
Um, I'd been, though, on a what turned into a two-week uh, experience to South Africa about five years before. So I joined a charity hike. So we'd hiked in the Cedarburg Mountains for a week, about 60 of us from Scotland. And then I'd stayed on for a week with about 10 others. And we took okay. basically a, an adult school trip. Um, so all of these things were great and they were in the locker. But once the decision was made that we were going to travel as a family, I was aware that I still was a little bit green, particularly when it came to backpacking. You know, I hadn't done the interrail thing, for example, when I was a student. So we had some time to spare because I left my job end of October, early November, and we weren't going to go on our year away until the kids had finished that academic year, okay. which in Scotland is the end of June. Right. So we had, what, seven, seven months or so to play with. So I went out to Sri Lanka for three months as a volunteer, work doing HR for an NGO okay. with, a group, with a group of other volunteers, most of whom were travel savvy. Now, it was an, it's, a, it's a beautiful country. It was an interesting time to go because it was deep in the heart of the, the civil war. So there were quite literally bombs going off all around me. Yeah. So I had to learn how to keep myself safe. But at the weekend, we all went traveling together. So I learned a lot of travel skills from them, which really stood us in good stead, I think, when we actually went out on the road as a family. Okay. So like, but like, you were, you were all relatively new to it, but that Sri Lanka experience, like got your, got your mindset and got the tips and like hints and skills that you might, might have needed for that year. That's right. Absolutely. And, you know, it is, you know, tra travel is a skill set. You have to gather skills around planning, uh, around budget, around managing risk, um, and just keeping resilient, particularly when you're traveling for a long period of time. Because, yeah, well, you know, it's like it's like having a job, isn't it? It's, mm. it? There's no rest. You can't just rest on your laurels unless you've planned that into... That, that week's itinerary or that or you you decide that you need a day a day off or something completely and you know parent parenting as a couple is a, is a is a job anyway and you assign responsibilities to each other in normal life uh, you know one person does the taxi run and another one does the shopping or whatever it might be and it was the same traveling for a year with the kids so i i assumed prime responsibility for planning uh, and budgeting and uh, my wife assumed prime responsibility for packing. If I ever dared <laughs> near, go near the packing, would be trouble. Uh, that hasn't changed. Uh, and she's a dietitian by trade, so she made sure that we all stayed healthy from a nutritional point of view right the way through the year. Apart, okay. from, apart from when we were ill with exotic tropical diseases, etc. But on the whole, she kept us right. So, <laughs> how, how many countries did you end up hitting on this like year-round adventure? It was just over 20, right. just over 20. So we went to four, four continents. Uh, it was 20, it's in the, the book, which I'm sure we'll come on to. So um, I did add them all up. It was 20, I think it might have been, I did it the other day, I think it actually might have been 23 countries. Right. Um, I say in the book 20, but I was got 20, 20 or so, over 100 places we stayed in, uh, 50, different, 50 different forms of transport, and uh, I'm ashamed to say, in one sense, uh, 40 for zero carbon emitting flights. Yeah, but it, it's like, like you say, you're ashamed to admit it, but it, it is what it is. I know a lot of people um, are, are coming towards like maybe carbon offsetting trips, but back then it was 2008, the trip, wasn't it? 
That's right. It, that mindset might not have like been at the forefront of um, everyone's like travel agenda to be it, it, to be yeah. carbon neutral. It is interesting actually write, writing this book uh, because I wrote blogs at the time. Uh, some were good and some would, I was clearly quite tired and it's, <laughs> it's here's a photo. Um, but they were my reference point for writing the book. And um, looking back, for example, when we, we uh, stood in the dark on a beach in Queensland, Australia, uh, watching baby turtles being hatched and, and going out to sea and then a mother turtle coming out of the sea onto the beach and laying a nest of, of eggs. Um, and I recount that being told about plastic in the ocean. Now, this is only a decade or so ago. Yeah. But we were hearing for the first time about plastic in our oceans. Now, of course, we all know it because of, because of David Attenborough or Big Dave, as my kids would call him. <laughs> uh, uh, but we didn't have the same level of en environmental awareness that we have now. So, it, yeah, it's interesting to, to look back and see how that's played out over that period of time. But yeah. So I was going to ask you, how did you keep track of all these like numbers and statistics? Was it from your blog or did you keep like a diary as well? Yeah, just a blog. Uh, in a way, I wish I had kept a diary. We, But what was kept was the kids' diaries. Okay. Okay. So... They were, yeah, they were eight and 10 when we traveled. And obviously they skipped school for an entire year. So we had to think about their education. Yeah. And making sure that they wrote a daily diary was a great way of ensuring that they were still writing and developing their writing at that age. Uh, now, these diaries at the start were fairly thin. You know, uh, we we went to a museum, we watched The Simpsons, had pasta for tea and went to bed. That was kind of the level of it. Yeah. Uh, but I've actually put some excerpts of their diaries in the book. Oh, great. Uh, from some some of the special days. So, you know, Machu Picchu, or the Great Barrier Reef, things like that. Uh, and they're magical. They're a joy to read. Oh, class. And it was just fantastic. A, seeing the world through their eyes but also watching them develop their, their, their own writing style and skills as, as the year went on. They're, they're, they're wonderful stories. Yeah, so um, they're, they're growing up now. What do they think uh, about this, that journey, looking back on it? Oh, I think it, cha it, it changed their lives, uh, and we knew it would. Uh, so when we made the decision to do it, I, and we, it was a chunk of money. We'd inherited some money through some tragedy. And we could have just put that in the bank or put it in stocks or whatever. But we, we thought, what if we don't actually get there? You know, what if we put this money aside? And just like my mother-in-law, we don't actually get there to enjoy it. So I said to, to my wife, Anna, at the time, I said, you know, we could either invest this money or we could invest it in this trip. And by investing it in this trip, we invest in ourselves as a family and we invest in each of us as individuals. And then I said... I don't know what that means, by the way, but I guess we'll find out in about 10 years. Yeah. Roll forward 10 years. I run a business that I would never have run if my attitude to life and risk hadn't changed. Uh, my daughter, um, for example, at the age of 15, raised £2,000 so she could do a one-month volunteering experience in Ghana at the age of 16 on her own yeah. with a group of volunteers. That would never have happened without the trip. 
my son has become a serial traveler. Uh, he, he and I are in competition to see who can get to 100 countries first. Um, I'm currently 10 ahead of him. So he's on 60 and I'm on 70. Nice. Uh, and uh, he, the summer before last, he, summer before last, yeah, just, yeah, a couple of years ago, he went on a big trip, backpacking trip through Central America, but started in Mexico. He met a Mexican girl in Mexican City in a park. And next Monday, they are getting married in Mexico. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this trip opened up this world mindset, and which has led to him going around the world, and then now he's led to his marriage, basically. Absolutely. So if that's not life-changing, I don't know what is. <laughs> that's cool. Um, logistically, are you, are you able to go, attend, or...? No, sadly not. We'll be, shame, we'll, yeah, we'll be. I mean, obviously they've got they've got restrictions out there as well. So I think it's a uh, four in the registry office and then a reception for thirty. But, oh, right, uh, yeah, that's a shame. But, yeah, it is a shame, and uh, we're yeah. My, my wife's particularly upset about that, but it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. We're also happy for him. So, um, Ian, why now for this book? Like, is it was it anything to do with like being locked down and like thinking about travel? Like, you wanted to put pen to paper, or is it just afforded you more time to actually do it? Well, ironically, it afforded me less time. Uh, <laughs> okay. so, so I think lockdown was quite binary for people. Yeah, so yeah. For a lot of people, they had a shed load of time because they either, you know, sadly lost their job or were furloughed or had a business that was just not very busy. Uh, my own business, my business does HR and health and safety. And if ever, for, for small, providing that service to small businesses. So if ever there was a time <laughs> that businesses needed help in HR and health and safety, it was 2020. So we were incredibly busy. So there's a there's a, a, a guy called Michael Heppel. Michael is a author, uh, event host, and speaker. He's also a success coach, and he's coached people like Davina McCall and Chris Evans. And he ran a masterclass called Write That Book last May. And I looked at it, and I thought, that's interesting, because I've been wanting to write this book for a while, but there's no way I'm doing this at the minute. I was just so busy. And then he ran it again um, beginning of November, starting with the six-day pop-up group. And I thought, well, I've actually watched on Facebook how other people have written books during this period and what an impact's, impact it's had on them. So maybe I'll just do the six-days pop-up group because I certainly haven't got time to do, join a masterclass and write a book, Yeah, I, th- I thought. After six days of the pop-up group, I had the title – are we there yet? I had the subtitle, the year-long adventure that kept on giving. I had the cover image. I had what's called the promise, which is the blurb on the back that tells you about the book. And I'd written a thousand words of the book. And I thought, there is no way I'm not going to finish this. Yeah. Yeah. So I signed up immediately. And the following morning at 6am, I'm at my desk starting to write the book. And literally the first words that you read in the book uh, are those words that I wrote at the beginning of November. Uh, and I wrote it in 80 days. Yeah, I saw that. It was quite, quite an apt number of days to write a book about travelling around the world. Yeah, yeah, a bit Phileas Fogg, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> wasn't wasn't planned that way, honestly. It just, just happened. Um, and that was to get to the first edit. But as I then started to go through the editing process and shared content with people, the feedback I was getting 
kind of kind of shocked me a bit. And I realized that actually I'd written something that people were really not just enjoying, but were getting drawn into and just wanted more and more. And I'd send them a chapter, maybe send them a thousand words and they'd say, can I have another thousand, please? Yeah. And then can I have another thousand? And I realized that what had started out as a legacy project, you know, something for my kids and their kids, had turned into something that was very relevant for now. That in a time when you can't travel, in a time when many parents are having to homeschool, actually learning about the the experiences of a family that did travel as a family, that did homeschool, but in the world, so world schooled, as it's called, was very relevant to people right now. It's a bit zeitgeisty. So um, I realized it wasn't just for us anymore. It was for the whole world to read. Yeah, have you had any direct feedback of like a family or someone that's going to go and do exactly what you've done and take the kids out of school and go and see the world? Certainly a few have said that, no, a few people have said, how do I do it? Can I do it? I want to do it. Right? So obviously nobody can do it at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's certainly created a few sparks for quite a lot of people. Uh, and uh, the feedback's been amazing, actually. Um, you know, I, I wanted to write... You know, most, most books don't, if they're bought, never get read. And even if someone starts them, most books don't get finished. So as I wrote it, I wanted to make sure that people would keep going from this paragraph to the next paragraph to the next paragraph, and it would be a page turner. So when I started getting messages at midnight from people saying, I've started reading your book. I really, really need to go to sleep, but I can't put it down. Oh, that's good, isn't it? Uh, or the guy who's a, a college principal who said to me on a Sunday, he said, uh, I'm gonna, I've bought your book, Ian, but it'll have to wait till my summer holiday. And then on the Wednesday, he posted his five-star review on Amazon and he read it in three sittings. Because once he started, he couldn't put it down. Oh, that's great, isn't it? That's fantastic, because that's what I wanted to create. I wanted to... I wanted to inspire people, educate them, entertain them, and just give, give them something that would be a pleasure. So yeah, if someone just smiles when they read it at the moment, then it's been worth doing. <laughs> if, if it changes someone's life, then wow, that would be amazing. What do you think like, was the, um, the biggest obstacle or, or the biggest obstacle that's facing people doing it? Do you think it, like, for yourselves, was it like quitting that job, that nice comfy job? Was it taking the kids out of the school? Was it the unknown? Was it the like the mindset of people telling you, well, that's crazy. That's what what was what was what did you find was the like the biggest sticking point or the biggest obstacle before you went away? I think it's all of those. Absolutely all of those. But I think that a lot of people just think I couldn't do it. Sounds amazing, but I couldn't do it. Now there's there's many people. And I completely respect this, who would go, mm, good for you, but it's not for me. Yeah, two weeks with the kids is plenty, thank you. And thought of doing a year uh, is not what I want to do. Uh, so I understand that. But I think there are other people who just look at it and think it would be too difficult. And actually, we're just an ordinary family. We just made an extraordinary decision. We didn't overthink it. We just thought, yes, we want to do this. And if you bear in mind that we did this, although it's only a decade ago, just over, it was a different world. 
that was the world before Zoom. It was the world before TripAdvisor, before Airbnb, before Google Translate. And the world was much more cut off from itself, less connected than it is now. And these days there are, there are families that world school who literally are just permanently on the road. There are also digital nomads. So if you were a marketing consultant or a social media consultant or whatever, a job that you can do remotely, there are families who just do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they can fund their lifestyle, their travel lifestyle on an ongoing basis from working remotely. So it's much more doable than it was when we made the decision to do it back then. Uh, so, you know, if anyone thinks, wow, I would love to do that, my response is then go and do it. Yeah, there's find a, a way and go and do it. Yeah, there's a couple of things. I'm mean, not even started yet, Ian, but there's a couple of things that you can, you like, go on, go out and go and see the world. There's nothing really stopping you. Even if you've got a family, just go anywhere and write that book. Go and write that book as well. Yes. So. Yeah. <laughs> as I said, look, look, if I can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm absolutely no one special. I, we just took a we took a decision, we followed it through, we committed to it. Uh, we did all the sensible things that anyone would did do. We we rode our luck, um, and then writing a book. Uh, it's about, as in many things in life, it's about surrounding yourself by good people, getting good advice, following it, being true to yourself, and working damn hard. And yeah. just being consistent. And that's that's what I did. Yeah, like getting it done. It's like I've started this podcast and I've thought about it for years. Thought about it more so in the past 16, uh, 12 months and maybe a bit longer. And it's all about just pulling the plug and or put, putting in the plug, plugging in the microphone and actually just doing it and being consistent and getting those episodes out there. And like, it's just, yeah, go and do it. Yeah, we, we prevaricate. As human beings, we yeah. all do it. Uh, you know, I, I've been, I have got some press coverage uh, up here. So I was in the Scotsman, for example, to the nas- national paper up here. Um, and that was through a connection. So that was easy. But then there's another local paper. And for the last three weeks, I've been thinking, you oh, know, I probably should get in that. And there's just that little bit of doubt which comes in about, I've actually got to take the plunge and make the, make the call or, Send it. Send the email. Yeah, and the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to get rejected or ignored, and that, and then so what if you do? But there's that thought, that negative, like that negativity exactly. in your mind. Yeah, yeah. I'll come back to that comment you just made in a moment, if I may, because um, you, you've you've stolen without knowing it. You stole you've stolen my stolen my catchphrase. So I'll come <laughs> back to it. Uh, but the you know, so yesterday I sent that email to that other local paper. This morning they interviewed me. Next week we'll be in that paper. So. The next thing is radio stations, TV stations. They all want content. This is a story that people can connect with. So what's, what's the worst that can happen? So that, that phrase, when I said to Anne, do you think we should do this? Do you think we should quit work, take the kids out of school, use this money and go backpacking around the world? She said, what's the worst that can happen? We have to downsize the house and buy a smaller one. Yeah. When seven years ago, I decided to leave 25 years of public sector employment with that final final pension and all the rest of it, 
and I decided to start my own business, we said, what's the worst that can happen? The business fails and you have to go and get another job. Yeah. So that, that fear of the worst happening is what stops so many people doing amazing things. And if you just flip that and go, what's the worst that can happen? You know, there's always a, there's always a plan B. Uh, yeah. In fact, I talk in the book, you know, plan, it's important to have a plan. So plan A is important, but it's rarely as good as plan B. Plan <laughs> C is nearly always better than plan B, but plan D is the one that rocks. I like that's that. the one that you want. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Well, um, just going back to what you said there, Ian, um, as a formal, former local news journalist, I, I once did a story about a crow knocking on an old woman's window. So to get for you, for you to ring me up and say I've, got, I've just written this book about around the world, uh, around the world adventure, I'd bite your hand off. I think <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, this, the, the the local news reporter today that interviewed me said at the end he said, "Thank you." That's been the brightest start to a Thursday morning I've had in a long time. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. So, there we go. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I think we've answered the question that you're well, um, you're well suited to be a guest on Travel Bubble. Yeah. So thank you for coming on. No, great. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. Going back, um, so we said we, you did this trip with your children. What were your childhood holidays like? What were your, what were your like adventures or holidays <laughs> like growing up? Uh, I didn't go on a plane until I was 17. Uh, which I guess is so. Your your listeners can't see me, so I'm I'm in my. I used to say I was 34 and a bit. I can't when I was in my early 40s. <laughs> I can't get away from that. Like we were. I was just over 40 when we did the trip. Uh, so we're a decade or so on. So you can work it out. <laughs> so so I I was a I was a child of the 70s and a student of the 80s. So we didn't tend to go on flights then like we do now for family holidays. Uh, I grew up in Lincolnshire, so it was, it was Skegness. Uh, we had family in, in Dorset. Uh, so we go down to Swanage or Wareham. Uh, we had uh, an uncle on the Lizard in Cornwall. So we'd go down to Cornwall. That, that was it. And nothing, nothing more. I'd work on the, the local farm every summer. Uh, so there were no long trips. I did do languages, so there was an exchange trip to France when I was maybe 15, and then an exchange trip to Valencia when I was 17. But no, travel came on a lot a lot longer on, on in my life. Anne had done a year. Her, te- her parents were both language teachers. Right. So she did long trips from Ab- long trips in the car down from Aberdeen down into, the, into France every right. summer. Uh, that is a long trip, she, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and when she was 10... They, her parents did a job swap with some language teachers from France. So she spent a year in France when she was 10. And she's always believed that that influenced her life. So I think that was also a factor for her in yeah. thinking and knowing why this would be good for our kids because she'd experienced it herself. Okay. I love these ideas of, of these um, job swaps or they see a lot of house swaps at the minute. Um, not, not at the minute, but like, they're becoming more, more and more prevalent where you can literally just swap houses for a, you can even do it for a short term. So like a family in Ireland can go and swap a house with a family in Spain for a month. And it's like a free holiday for both That's families. Right. Yeah. I think it's yeah. quite a good idea. Yeah. We've done it. We've done, okay. we've done yeah. Not through any, any website or anything, although I know these exist, uh, but just through connection. 
decisions. So one of the things when you become a traveling family is you become part of another community that you didn't know exist. You didn't think that traveling families was a thing, but <laughs> it was. So we, we discovered online before we went away, as I was doing my research, a family in Washington, D.C., who were planning to go around the world for a year at the same time that we were. And they left their home in D.C. on the same day we left our home in Scotland. Okay. And they went, uh, I can never get this right, they went one way around the world and we went the other way around. Uh, so they started in South America, which is where we finished. And we started in Africa and, and then Asia, and I think they finished in Asia. And we kept in touch as we travelled around and we arranged to meet and we met on New Year's Day at 2 p.m. on the steps of the Sydney Opera House. That's class. Which is just amazing. And we had the most <laughs> beautiful afternoon, which I describe in the book. And obviously we had such a, we had so much in common at that point that we were able to share. Uh, and yeah, we've stayed in each other's houses since. So they get a free holiday in Scotland and we get one in DC. What's, what's not to like? That's great. I like that. So Ian, you've been to 70 countries. So I'm really interested to hear your travel bubble choices. Oh, it's a that's it's a great it's a great question as always. It's always tricky. So uh, I might I might jump in and, and ask you what would what is your travel bubble destination number one? I am going to say the country that I went we went to on our trip that I loved the most. Uh, so all four of us had different top picks. Mine was Peru. Okay. I adored Peru. I always, I'd always wanted to go ever since I read Paddington Bear as a boy. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to go to deepest, darkest Peru, home of that great Aunt Lucy. Uh, so it had that kind of magical thing in my mind, I think, from an early age. But it is such a, I mean, it's unique, but it's beautiful. It's colourful, it's historic, it's noisy, it's quiet. You're deep in the Andes Mountains. You've got rich history from the, the Incas. Um, obviously, amazing architecture, which some of which people know, with Machu Picchu being the most obvious example. We loved everything about Peru, apart from one thing, and that was the food. Right, okay. Okay. Because what I haven't mentioned yet is we're all vegetarians. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that was interesting at times going around the world. Uh, many of the time when we were in a town and the, there was a McDonald's and we could have saved a fortune on our budget, but all we could do was use its toilets, which we did. Uh, but in Peru, the, uh, the national dish um, is the guinea pig. Uh, the uh, C-U-Y uh, Qui, I think they pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, and you get restaurants called Queerias. There was even a village we went through where every restaurant specialises in guinea pig. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, that was not really what we were going to eat. <laughs> <laughs> we did manage to find an amazing backpacker cafe, so that kept us good with veggie burgers, etc. in the end. Did you manage uh, to stick to it for the full year then? The um, Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, was never in doubt. Yeah. The, you know, um, We've been veggie for a long time. In fact, uh, both kids are now vegans. Uh, so, yeah, there was not, not a question they wouldn't do it. It just meant that, I mean, we self-catered a lot. Yeah. Um, and when we went out, it was 
probably eight times out of ten it was pizza. Um, some, and some, some of those times it even looked like pizza and even, even more rarely it tasted like it <laughs> so yeah Peru, Peru is an amazing country and um, it's got some great sites in it you know you've got the I mean, we, you've, we didn't do the Nazca lines we've got the Nazca lines uh, we went sandboarding in massive high dunes you've got beautiful colonial towns you've got Machu Picchu uh, Cusco has got this uh, Valley of the South, Valley de Sur around it with lots of beautiful sites. Um, you've got the Andes themselves. You've got, lot, you've got Lake Titicaca on the way into Bolivia, which is the highest inland lake in the world. Just so much to see and do. Uh, and, and even the, the coastline, um, if you can't get to the Galapagos, then you've got probably the next best thing just south of Lima. So, yeah, there's so much to do and see. I loved it. So what would be your must-do or number one activity to do in Peru? If you don't go to Machu Picchu, <laughs> <laughs> then you, you've arguably not been to Peru. Yeah. Now, that's, that's got harder because they've restricted visitor numbers. Forget COVID, they've restricted visitor numbers anyway. So it, it, it is harder. If you can't do that, just spend some time in Cusco and they, take day trips from out of it. Because uh, you'll get, you won't quite get the Machu, Machu Picchu experience, but you'll get as close to it as you're going to get because there's some stunning places to to go, stay, and uh, experience there. So, how did you do it? Did you do the Inca Trail, or did you go? Did you get like the bus or the train up, or whatever it is? Yeah, we got the train. Um, when you travel with kids, there are constraints. Yeah, so you can't do everything that you would do as a 20-year-old backpacker, <laughs> uh, and that was one of them. Uh, that would have just been there, because you're at deep altitude, you're at high altitude as well. Um, and until you've experienced altitude, you don't know how it will affect you. Yeah. So I was fine, actually. I was okay with it, but my wife wasn't. So she really suffered with it. Uh, so It affects really... me, to be honest, and it's quite yeah. annoying. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, like, yeah. there's no physiological reason, reasoning for it. It just it is what it is. It is just different people experiencing it in a different way. So mm. yeah, so that so that wasn't good. So yeah, we uh, we had uh, and I'll I'll it's described in the book, so I'll not give you the spoiler. But we had an interesting experience with Machu Picchu uh, that nearly resulted in it in it not happening. Uh, but yeah, we uh, we went on one of the world's most beautiful train journeys uh, from um, I can't remember the name of the place now, but anyway, the town that you get the train from. Uh, all the way to Aguas Calientes, which is the town that sits just underneath Machu Picchu. Nice. I bet that, I bet that, I bet that train ride is worth it in itself, anyway. The um, I'll go on. I need. I'll let's just say that um, I didn't experience it the way that I wanted to, due to uh, an illness that suddenly came upon me. <laughs> ah, right. Yeah. But that's, that's all detailed in the book. It is. It is in uh, in graphic detail. <laughs> <laughs> So it was all good. Good. You, you still have to tell the tale. Indeed. So obviously the most, that's the most two activity. What would be, are, are any food experiences aside from the guinea pigs that stuck out in your mind like they, that you, you, you ate yourself? So in terms of our wider travels, my favourite country for food is Sri Lanka. Now, most of us love a curry, but the curries that we get in the UK tend to be based on Northern Indian cuisine. Yeah. And Southern Indian is different. But then when you then get 
hop across the water to Sri Lanka, it's different again. It's got it's got that twist on it. And when I was spending my three months in Sri Lanka as a volunteer, the organisation that I was with was a Buddhist-based organisation, uh, and there was a staff canteen. And every day we'd leave the, I'd like to say air-conditioned office, there was a fan, is the reality. Uh, and we'd swelter two minutes down the road to the, to the canteen. And every day there were four different curries, all vegetarian, so four Gosh. different vegetarian curries, two different rices, so red rice, which they predominantly use, and white rice, poppadoms and pickles. And it was, it was self-serve, so you could keep going back for more. And it took four weeks of rotation before the same dishes came back around again. Amazing. Yeah, so all of these amazing tropical vegetables and fruits that, that, that were growing indigenously in the country, they were able to use. Uh, and it was delicious. It was so good. The only problem, of course, was you then had to walk back in the sweltering heat and then try and work again in the afternoon when all you wanted to do was, was, have, a, was have a grandpa nap. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so Sri Lankan food is gorgeous. And we just don't really get it over here. You don't really no. get Sri Lankan restaurants or takeaways, but it's stunning. So I would, if anyone gets the chance to go to Sri Lanka, that would be the top tip of mine. Cool. So is there anything else you'd like to say more about uh, Peru before we move on, Ian? Peru, the, it's very colourful really colorful so although the the landscape's quite brown and then the the sky is bright blue there's a lot of um wearing of traditional costumes which are lots of bright reds and oranges and yellows so it's a really vibrant country really vibrant you you just feel very alive there uh so yeah i, I adored it and Great. yeah the whole family loved it although they had their other favorites for, for different reasons nice so um Peru would be your country number one what would be your travel bubble destination number two okay, well i've kind of hinted at sri lanka um which is very much in my heart so why don't i say a little bit more about that because it's not just the food no absolutely so yeah. Uh, yeah, tell me about why, why you choose Sri Lanka. Yeah, so I've been to Sri Lanka now uh, three times. Right. Um, first time was a family trip um, two years before we did the round the world trip. Uh, and then we went back. Well, we ha- I had them three months out there volunteering and the family came out at the end for a week or so. And we toured around. And then we went again uh, about five years ago. Uh, and... I've said we'll go every. I'll go every ten years for the rest of my life. <laughs> that will just be part of the pattern. So every 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 decade we'll go back. I love Sri Lanka. It's it's not a huge island in the scheme of things, so it's quite doable. It's diverse in its climate. So the east is very different from the west. They're in different climatic zones. Uh, so if it's if it's monsoon on one side of the island, it's not on the other. Yeah. The north, which wasn't accessible at the time I was there and previously because the war was in full, the Tamil Tigers were in, in full flow, um, is very different. And culturally it's very different because that's where the Tamils live, who came from, from India in centuries past, um, who were persecuted during the war. So it's a very, very different. The food's different, the culture's different, the landscape's different. And then the, the South and the Southeast 
which of course was devastated by the, the Boxing Day tsunami, is tropical beauty at its, at its best. You have those classic Indian Ocean palm-fringed beaches with all of nature's wonders in the sea just off it. Inland, you've got rainforest, you've got jungle with elephants and jaguar and all sorts of amazing um, animals and, 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 and nature everywhere. So it, it's amazing. And the people are beautiful. The people are so warm and gentle and friendly. And of course, I saw them when I was there during the Civil War at their most vulnerable. Yeah. Um, you know, and people, they'd be maybe two hours late into work because a, bu a bus had blown up in front of them on the way in. Um, and they were having to deal with that kind of trauma. Hmm. I mean, I heard a, I went on a, a, a weekend trip to a place in the north called Anuradhapura, which is an ancient civilization full of Buddhist temples. And it was right, it was the furthest point that the train north from Colombo would go. Okay. At that time during the war, it was the last stop. And I think the main road was the A9. And if you stood on one side of the road, I was insured. And if I stood on the other side of the road, I wasn't insured because I was now breaching F FCO rules about where you could go. So yeah. I was right on the front line, you know, with soldiers with Kalashnikovs, AK-47s everywhere. Um, but, and, and, and I got back, um, and that evening I was sat on my bed in Colombo, writing my blog, and I heard, sorry, it was the following morning, well, it was the following morning, and I heard, I heard boom. And just down the road, a guy had, a homeless guy, had picked up something in a flower bed in the middle of the road and blown himself up. And it was a bomb intended for the president's children on their way to school. So these beautiful people were having to cope with all of that. So to go back a few years later and to be able to go to the, the places that were the other side of the A9, the places that were off limits, yeah, yeah. and see how stunning they were, how warm and friendly the people were, to see the culture starting to evolve and women starting to be able to drive and be able to work in what had been previously completely male-dominated cultures was fascinating. So I love it. It's got many layers. Uh, it's beautiful to, to see the climate, of course, it's fantastic. So yeah, it's great, great to go and get a bit of warmth. And <laughs> uh, when we went back um, five years ago, we went for four weeks. And the final week, we based ourselves at a place called Marissa, which is one of these resorts on the south coast. And when we'd been a decade previously, there was a couple of shacks. It was like one of these remote beaches where you almost, yeah, yeah. you've almost got the Caribbean rum shack type thing on the yeah, beach. Yeah. Uh, a decade on, it was now a resort, but not high, not high rise, just, you know, kind of bamboo poled shacks on the beach. Oh, okay. And I just got to the point and I've never done this before and I've never done it since where I could just sit all day with a beer, just watching the waves and people surf and the dogs play on the beach. 
And it was just almost, almost zen-like. And it was just stunning. And I just, yeah, if I could do that every year for a week, I would. Because, uh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful place. It sounds beautiful, Ian. You're selling, you're selling it to me. I've never been, so right. you're putting it higher up my list. Do it, so. do it. It's very, it's, it's not difficult to get to. You know, one, one stop from uh, Dubai or whatever and you're there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What would be your must-do activity or must-see thing in uh, Sri Lanka? Ooh, um, there's a lot. There's a place called um, there's a place called Sinharaja Rainforest. Sinharaja okay. Rainforest, and um, we went been a couple of times, and it's it's virgin rainforest. Most of which doesn't exist anymore, of course, but is, and is being replanted. And if you've never been to a rainforest, it's quite a good place to start because it's genuine. You know, it's true rainforest, but it's quite accessible as well. And the first time we went with the kids, we camped. So we went with a company called Explore, who do these organized uh, adventure holidays. And we camped. And there were leeches. Now, I'm probably not going to sell it to you at this point. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd read about what leeches can do, and I'd seen leeches in I don't know, Blackadder pro- programs, probably you know blood, these blood-sucking things. Yeah. Uh, and I'd read where they where they where they can crawl up and what they can do. <laughs> so we arrived. I went straight in my tent, zipped the door, <laughs> had a bot had a bottle of beer, which I then kept as an empty bottle in case I needed it overnight, and didn't go out. But when I when I came out the next morning, it's beautiful. Absolutely stunning. And of course, you've got exotic plants, you've got exotic creatures uh, that you wouldn't find anywhere else in the world. Um, And then I went back a few years when I was doing the volunteer experience. uh, And this time we stayed in a little guest house um, and went on a tour finding out all about it. So there are some more obvious places like Yala National Park, um, where you can go and see see elephants, etc. Yeah. Uh, there's something called the Cultural Triangle, um, which has got um, a place um, called uh, oh, it's gone, it's gone from it. There's a rock that you can climb, uh, massive rock, which is beautiful. Uh, there's some rock temples uh, near there as well. So there's, there's lots of fantastic places you can go to, but yeah, Sinharaja is uh, perhaps a less known one. That I would no, recommend that's that's perfect. That's, that's, that's right up our street here on travel bubble. The less known must do activities. I like it. So thanks for that, Ian. Um, we mentioned the food, food earlier. Is there any, any particular dish that stands out for you or any, any food memories that, um, or is it, was it that, that canteen when you were volunteering? Was that the, is that the food memory of Sri Lanka? Yes, I think so. I think it would be um, because of the diversity. Yeah. So it's not like it's a single meal that stood out. It's the fact that every day there were there were three or four different meals in one. And yeah. then you go back the next day and it'd be different again. Uh, and they were also colourful. You know, I, I don't remember taking photos of them and I wish I would. I think in, you know that was in the days before iPhones. I think I'd, be, I'd, I'd have a, a whole album worth of uh, colourful curry book photos now from that. But uh, 
Yes, absolutely fantastic. Love. Yeah, my my friend's best friend Sri Lankan, and from what I've, what he's told me, it's very spicy and like very dry kind of dishes, like dry curries. Yes, and you can you can you can vary the spice as well. Yeah. So there's a thing called sambal, which comes yeah, in a little yeah. dish on the side, which is basically chopped up chili, and you add it to taste. Uh, so you can make it. So the longer I was there, the more I would add. <laughs> uh, and of course, you don't just have curry for lunch. So in Sri Lanka, you start, you eat, you have, you have breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, and your evening meal like a pauper. If I've, hopefully that I think that's how they've described it. <laughs> so so you have you start with curry for breakfast. You have a big big curry breakfast. Yeah. Uh, which I um, I got to love. Um, and then obviously I was having the big curry lunch. And then, yeah, you didn't you didn't really need a meal in the evening. Yeah, they say that's the healthiest way to eat, isn't it? Like, you don't need that big meal at the, at the end of the day. That's right. We do it the wrong way around because the purpose of, of food is to fuel your body for the day ahead. <laughs> yeah. and, and then we, we have a we massive dinner at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. Exactly, we fuel it for sleep. <laughs> and go to sleep. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. Okay, so Ian, you've had Peru and Sri Lanka. What would be your travel bubble destination number three? Let's go with the Balkans. Let's get a little bit closer to home. Okay. Um, okay, my, wife, my wife's going to say, why, why aren't you just saying Italy? Because we love Italy, right? <laughs> so uh, I absolutely could be saying Italy at this point. You know, I could go to Italy every year of my life. Uh, we honeymooned in Italy. Uh, it's in many ways, it's our destination of choice. But your your listeners will most of them have been to Italy. You've done previous uh, episodes on Italy, so uh, let, let's go with the Balkans. Um, so I've only been to Croatia and Montenegro. A lot of people have been to Dubrovnik, and it's a great entry point into that part of the world. But there are a lot of off-the-beaten-track destinations in both Croatia and Montenegro that people haven't been to. So if you I had would... to choose one, Ian, which one would you go for? So I'm going to say uh, there's a place in Montenegro called KOTOR, K-O-T-O-R. Yeah. Uh, and it's on, it's on the coast, but it's inland in that it sits at the head of a fjord. And this is a place in the summer where cruise ships come up. So you'll get a crew, one or two cruise ships coming up every day, but for a good reason. Because KOTOR itself is one of these beautiful medieval towns. There's a castle way up top. Um, I, th- I remember the day we went up there. That was a 30,000-step day. <laughs> uh, right. Um, but you can get on boats and go across this glacial lake to lots of beautiful little towns and little islands that sit on the lake. You can get a you can get in a car and go up a, a crazy zigzag pass up into the mountains up top where there are suddenly you're in Switzerland, there are alpine villages. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I just thought it was absolutely beautiful. The sort of place where you take your photos and you think. That is a cracking photo, but it doesn't do justice to <laughs> yeah, where we yeah. actually are. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, just just stunning. So um, it is accessible. You know, it's, we got 
there we did an Airbnb to start. We started in Kotor for sort of a two or three week holiday uh, in Montenegro. And we flew into Dubrovnik, were picked up, um, I think it maybe took an hour and a half in the car, which was a very beautiful uh, drive in itself. Uh, so that would be that would be a great place to go back to. Uh, in fact, my my son and his new new to be wife um, are leaving Mexico in a couple of months' time once they've got married, uh, and they are going to spend three three months in Montenegro because it's a relative, it's a safe place at the moment and it's visa free. You just need a PCR test and you're in. Yeah. Uh, so they're going to spend three months in, in Montenegro. So I'm giving them lots of tips of places to stay. Uh, Kotor's one, although I'm suggesting they base themselves just a little bit nearer Croatia in a place called Hercegnovi, um, which is the first resort into Montenegro. Um, the reason being it's a bit cheaper than Kotor. Okay. Because the cruise ships don't go there. So it's, it's, it's just a price peg down. It's possibly more more of a port town and less of a tourist resort uh, than Kotor. Um, but I'm sure they go to Kotor as well. And then as you go along the coast, there are other places to go as well. And you can actually, um, you can actually do what we did, which you can do a day. You can, you can pop into Albania for lunch. So that was quite fun. So we left our car at the border uh, and walked through the walk through the Montenegro Albania border post. Mate, I, I've done the same actually, but Have with you? Macedonia, I went to right. Albania for the day, had a few beers really? in my had a few beers in Albania, then walked back through. <laughs> Superb, and they, they are not expensive beers, are they? No, no, it was such a good day. I really enjoyed it. Walking across borders is always fun. It feels mm. like quite dangerous and showing your passport, and it feels a bit dodgy, but it, it's not. But it just feels quite fun. I love it. I love walking across borders. <laughs> uh, I mean, just just to briefly take you back to to, to our trip, um, we. You know those moments where, uh, where someone says, "Where were you when?" All right. So I, I, there's a ch- there's a little page of the book about this, right? You know, where were you when JFK was born? Well, I uh, was killed. Well, I wasn't born. Where were you when um, you that man landed on the moon? I was in my cot. Where were <laughs> you when you when John Lennon was killed? Well, I was I was a teenager, and I remember my mum waking me up to tell me about it. Where were you when? Uh, planes crashed into the Twin Towers. Well, I was at Edinburgh Airport watching it on a TV screen as I board, just before I boarded the last flight to fly in UK airspace before it was closed. Right? right. The other question, where were you when Barack Obama was elected as the first black African, first African-American president of the USA? And my kids will always be able to say that they were crossing the border between Thailand and Cambodia. And we watched him make his acceptance speech on a small black and white portable TV at the border post whilst our, passport, our passports were being stamped. Uh, so, yeah, just they're amazing places. The, the border between Thailand and Cambodia is different from any other border I've crossed. I know it because, well, I think. If it's the place I'm, I'm thinking about, there's a big casino right. there as well. And yes, You have to go in a it. separate room and it, it feels like... Every day, it's like it feels like no one knows what is the hell is going on, even though yeah. that's their job every day. For, <laughs> for like, it's, to, it seems like every day it's like they don't they don't know what to do. But it's just it's a bizarre experience because you're in. So we were going from uh, Thailand into Cambodia, so we're in a market 
just a traditional market town in Thailand, but you've we've come on a on a modern minibus from Bangkok along dual carriageways, and then you you walk through with your rucksack, you get your passport stamps and your visa or whatever it was, and then you've got to walk about a quarter mile, and there's all these casinos. Mm. And you think, what the heck's going on? What are all these modern casinos doing? And then you learn afterwards that gambling is illegal in both countries. And these are day, day gamblers. Yeah. Yeah, which is why they're not carrying a bag. And they're literally just coming to gamble and then go back again. And then you enter Cambodia a quarter of a mile later. And certainly then it was like stepping out of Doctor Who's TARDIS mm. into an 1880s American frontier town because there's no roads, you know, and suddenly you're driving on, on rutted roads in a battered yeah, old taxi, yeah, yeah. and you've gone back a century in time, so quite an experience. Um, but sorry, to take you back to the Balkans, um, <laughs> a bit of time travel there. Um, one of the other things I like about it, you just touched on it, Matty, is you've got so many countries so close to each other. So what was once Yugoslavia is now all these different countries. So if you're into different cultures, different experiences, and perhaps just racking up a number of countries on your list, it's a great place to go. Yeah. Because you can do Macedonia and, and Serbia and, and Croatia and Montenegro and Slovenia and... Kosovo, um, all, all Kosovo, those places. Bosnia, yeah. yeah. Um, all very, very accessible. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely on my list to go back and... Uh, Tot of a few more countries from from seventy to to eighty in a relatively <laughs> easy way. Well, I've got a Montenegrin friend called Milos, and so he'll be very very happy that you chose Montenegro. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there, there are your three countries uh, boxed off. Ian, you've got uh, Peru, Sri Lanka. Um, I'm going to take Montenegro as your Balkan country. What would be your wild card destination, which is a place that you've not been to, but it's, it's top of your list. So there are many places top of the list, <laughs> but funnily enough, uh, the one place I've not been to, and I thought I might be going there this year, is Mexico. Ah, that's a shame, right? isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So there's a per- clearly a personal reason for that. We wanted to be at our son's wedding, but I've always fancied Mexico. I think it just—I mean, there are security issues, and in a way, I'll be—I'll be glad with my boys in Montenegro. Right, he's, he's survived it, but I know he will. Um, but it it's diverse. It's again got that rich history, that Aztec history. The food's amazing. Um, you've got two coasts, which I'm sure are very, very different. Uh, so I really, I really fancy getting there. And what I know is through through my life experience now is that places that are not safe to go to, many of them become safe. And I talk about this in the book. So there were places that we went to and have been to that were were off limits when I was a student. So if you just told me as an 18-year-old who was an anti-apartheid protester that I would be able to go with my family to South Africa, if you told me when I was in the the university film club watching the killing fields that I'd be able to go to Cambodia. 
if you'd have told me um, as I was studying modern Spanish history uh, at university and learning about what was going on in Chile under General Pinochet and Los Desperacidos, that I'd be able to take my family to Chile. If you'd have told me that I'd be able to go to the Vietnam of Oliver, Oliver Stone movies and Springsteen songs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we went to all of those places in our year uh, on Vietnam a little bit later. So these places, you know, Argentina, again, you know, generation I am, Falkland Islands, you know, mm. um, now you can go to Argentina. So there are places that right now, places in Central America, I would love to go to, places I know are beautiful like Nicaragua, um, areas of Mexico that might be a little bit dodgy at the moment, parts of the Middle East that I'd love to go to. Uh, that right now you can't go to. Play. You know, there are some stunning architectural sites, aren't there, in Syria or in Iran? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. I, I, I had I a guy the other day who was um, singing the praises of Yemen. He said Yemen's right. the one to watch, but again, it's one of the most dangerous countries in the world. Absolutely. But that, you know, hopefully as the arc of history continues to move, these places will once again become accessible. Now, whether it's in my time or it's in my kids' time, I don't know. Um but, but they will come. And, and the other thing, Matty, is there's places to go, but there's also experiences to have. And one of the things you learn about travel is you take yourself with you. So it's not just about where you go. It's about the people that you met, you meet. It's about where you are in your own life journey and your travel journey. So I think as you get more experienced in travel, you travel better you become more inquisitive, you become more comfortable in having new experiences in talking to strangers and going out, outside your comfort zone. And your comfort zone, just as in life, you know, I was talking about this with my wife at lunchtime, funnily enough. Um, you know, today I've been interviewed by a print journalist. I'm doing this podcast with you. Um, this evening I'm going on an online, an, an online TV show. Now, there would have been a time in my life not that long ago when those three things would have terrified me. Yeah. And now it's just what I'm doing today because they're now part of my comfort zone because I've stretched myself. And I think it's the same with travel. The more you travel, the more you stretch your comfort zone and you can do new and different things. So even if you can't go to some of the places that you want to because of budget or time or security – it still means in the places you do go to, you'll travel better and you'll travel deeper than you would have done when you were a, a younger, less experienced traveler. So I, you know, the, you know, that subtitle of the book, the year-long adventure that keeps kept on giving. I think travels like that, it's a gift that keeps on giving because you just get better at it the more that you travel. And, and I hope people listening to this will, will, who are travelers themselves will recognize that. No, absolutely. Like you can go back to, like you say, you can go back to places, and you're a different person. So you're going to get different experiences from from those places, depending on when you when you went there uh, during your life. Like so, you've been to Sri Lanka three times, all three different stages and three different stages of Sri Lanka. So you you take something different out of it every time you go. That's absolutely right, and, and the world keep just keep changing. I mean, somewhere we've not talked about, um, which would be somewhere else I'd love to go back to that we went on our trip was Madagascar. Now, Madagascar is, you know, 
we all think exotic when we think of Madagascar, and it is, but it's fast changing as well. So it's it, it's politically unstable. Yeah. It's wildlife, which is unique, of course, uh, is to a large extent in danger of becoming extinct. And its natural habitat on which that wildlife depends is being devastated through the conversion of rainforest into palm oil plantations. And that is leading to the the soil, the red soil that it has, just literally bleeding into the sea. So the Madagascar that I visited in 2008 already doesn't exist. It's a different country. And it's also the same country. And yeah. that, ju- that juxtaposition, I think, would be fascinating to go back and see it again. Yeah, exactly. And experience it in a different way. And then again, as you say, you know, I'm a different person now in terms of my travel experience. I'd go back to it not as a parent with kids, but as an independent, I'm going to say older. I'm older than I was. I'm not <laughs> old. Older travel, traveler. Uh, and it would just be a completely different experience. Uh, so yeah, travel is the gift that keeps on giving. Well, Ian, it's been wonderful. But before you go, can I ask you some generic travel questions? Of course. Great. This one's a bit all-encompassing, but what would be your top travel tip for someone about to set out on the open road? I am. I have many, but I'm, the, the first one. The first one that comes to mind is the one I'll use. Uh, and it is plan, okay? And that might, some people might think that's controversial. Some people might think don't have a plan. But I think have a plan so that you don't have to use it. No, yes. it's, the same, it's the same in business. So, you know, if you didn't have a plan going into 2020, that was a bad thing, even though you would have then put that plan in the bin. But a plan is a, is a place to start, it gives you confidence. It gives you a framework of reference to work from. So I will research places that we're going extensively. So say we're going to Montenegro for two weeks, right? So I've got the Lonely Planet. I've been stalking TripAdvisor Forum. I've been stalking the Lonely Planet Forum. I've watched lots of videos on YouTube. And then when we get there, that's just information. It's information that I can draw on to then do what we want to do and do it our way. And then suddenly I'll see a a road sign or a bus bus, um, sign and go, oh, yeah, I read about that. I saw saw that. We should do that. And it just creates a spark. Yeah, Yeah. It also gives me background information about the culture and the history of the place that we're going to. So I understand something about it before I go. So when we went to, so a couple of years ago, my wife and I went to both Vietnam and Cuba in consecutive years. In fact, it feels like we're doing a tour of communist countries at the moment. <laughs> we, went to the, we went to the Baltic States last year. Um, so um, we're, we're racking them up. Uh, in fact, I saw, I saw Russia across the river, a place called Narva in Estonia, which is the furthest in uh, the furthest east in the EU that you can go to. Okay. Um, so, uh, so nearly got to, the, to, to Russia. Um, but we watched 
documentary series on Netflix about the whole Cuban revolution. We watched documentary series about the Vietnam War. And it just meant when we were there and we were doing, say we did a tour uh, to the, um, again, the, 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 the name escapes me from momentarily, but the area, the main area in Vietnam that was the, the, the battle line between North and South, DMZ, DMZ, Demilitarized Zone. Um, and we went on a tour for the day with a guy who was a vet, who was a, um, a prisoner. He was a veteran and a prisoner during the Vietnam War. And he was telling us all these stories and he went, he took us to some of the, the main sites, um, one of which is referenced in one of my favorite songs, which is Born in the USA by Springsteen. Uh, but when he's telling us things, I'm not hearing it for the first time. I've already done my research. So what he's telling me is added knowledge and added value and reminders of things we already know. And it just means you've got a deeper understanding that you would have, you would have had before. So travel is therefore richer and deeper, having done that planning and that research. And then spontaneity can happen and serendip serendipity can happen, but it's got a foundation to it. Yeah, like you say, it's something as simple as watching a couple of documentaries about the country before you go to it. It just gives you that background and you're going to enjoy it more and you're going to know what's going on more because you've invested a little bit of time. And I think it's your duty as a traveller to have a bit, show that bit of respect to that country that you're visiting to at least do a bit of research. I, I agree, partic and particularly if you go into places that have got a rich history and a, a rich culture and you know are perhaps somewhere unique in the in the the natural world uh then having done that planning and that research is is play is giving respect to that country and those peoples but also it's going to improve the experience that you're going to have as well nice um that's a good tip ian i'm not sure if you're a materialistic person what have been the um, the best souvenir you've got from your travels <laughs> and I'm laughing because the, the online TV show that I'm doing tonight, uh, which is called Brilliant People Live, uh, and you have, to, you have to bring one item that means a lot to you okay, uh, and, and explain why. And I'm doing this in just over an hour's time, and I still haven't decided what it's going to be because I keep changing <laughs> my mind. Um, so when we, when we did our year around the world, it's not like going on holiday you can't just bring back a few souvenirs. Yeah, exactly. So we had to be yeah. really, yeah, really selective. We did do some parcels. So we did send parcels back three or four times. So, you know, dotted around our house are various um, little mementos. And whenever I see them, they, they make me smile. Um, but actually I've got, um, I've got, which sits in, next to my TV. So I look at it every night, is a, a small wooden red tuk-tuk from Sri Lanka. So it's just, you know, maybe four, four, three or four inches high, yeah. uh, five inches long. So it's a little toy thing. Um, but it always reminds me of traveling in that part of the world. It reminds me of going to work every day when I was doing that volunteer experience. So every day at our, we, we hired a tuk-tuk who was my driver every day for oh, three months. Yeah, yeah. And he came and picked me up and I'd sit in the back of his tuk-tuk uh, and I'd have a buff over my nose. Um, I think I had pollution dirt in my ears for nine months afterwards. Um, and obviously you're going past buses and thinking, 
crikey, I hope that one doesn't blow up next to me because <laughs> of what was, what was going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that memory um, and many others of being in tuk-tuks in Sri Lanka always come back to me the moment that I see, see that little toy next to my TV. So oh, I'm going to pick that one and thank you because maybe I've, now I've rehearsed <laughs> that little answer. Maybe that's what I'm going to use in an hour's time. Well, Ian, I thought you were going to say your your children's uh, travel diaries, but the tuk-tuk will do. (laughs) Well, you see, you've shamed me now. I'm (laughs) just joking. They're they're great as well. They're great. But... uh, uh, of course, what's more important than them is not those pieces of paper, but it's the difference that it's made to their lives. Yeah, Um, I'm I'm just joking. Um, (laughs) We've touched on all the the great things and all the brilliant things about travelling. Have you ever been in any danger or in any sticky situations? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the, the blogs that I wrote when we went around the world didn't feature these things because my parents were reading them. Uh, so it was <laughs> they were sanitized. Yeah, yeah. So when I decided to write the book, uh, I said, I'll write the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So this is the real version of what happened. And there are about uh, 30 stories in there of things that went wrong. Um, And there's the time that we thought we were being kidnapped by the Chinese mafia. There's the time that my son nearly died in China. There's the time that my daughter nearly died in South America. Uh, There's the the illnesses that we had, um, the accidents, um, just to some extent things that could happen anywhere. They just happen to happen in exotic places. And, you know, when you're doing that many things in an intense period, it's inevitable that things are going to happen. That's life. You know, you can, you know, a few weeks or maybe the year before we went uh, around the world for a year, a terrorist drove a a bomb truck into Glasgow Airport and killed people who were going on a package holiday to Benidorm. So things can happen anywhere. But, yeah, we absolutely had near disasters that endangered our physical safety. But, you know... I say, what's the worst that can happen? And somebody who was interviewing me the other week said, your kids could die? And I went, well, yeah, okay, that's the worst that could happen. But they didn't. Yeah. So, yeah. But like yeah. you said, they could, that could happen anywhere, couldn't it? Oh, completely, completely. You just have to accept that's part of travel. Before you go, what would you say to like a family or, I'd say my best friend's got a child now and his one of his dreams is to go and like, go and do this before the child's at school. What would you say to someone with these like young children or a family who, who want to go and replicate what you've what you've what you've done? I think the first thing I'd say is think about why you want to do it. So in life, that question, why, is is so important. Yeah, and it's a question yeah. that people don't ask, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's the most important question. You know, in, in business, Simon Sinek talk, teaches this. Start with the why. Um, so we had a very strong why. Um which was that because we'd been caring for my um, father-in-law who had dementia, who lived with us, we lost family life. So when our kids were five, six, seven, we couldn't just go out to the cinema spontaneously because he couldn't be left on his own. So we, we wanted to bring our family back together and have that quality family time. So that's what drove it. It wasn't actually about those 10 places with animals as exciting as it was to go to them. It was about being connected with the family. So be clear why you want to do it. And then I think if your friend has a, has a youngish child, think about if, you, if you're only going to do this once 
And for most of us, taking the kids out of school, quitting your job, you probably are only going to do once. Then think about what age would be the good, the, the ideal time to do it with your kids. So I, I, I talk about this in the book. You know, for, for us, our kids at eight, at eight and 10 were the ideal t- age. From an educational point of view, they could read, they could write, they could, they could assimilate knowledge, uh, and they could, they've got basic maths. So the world could be their, their classroom, and actually they'd learn a lot more in a year than they would have done at school. And they could probably remember it as well. Correct. That's the second point. They could remember it, whereas with younger kids, they won't. And therefore, the impact is more on the parents than it is on the children. And you want to think about that, I think, if you've got younger kids. Our kids were also at an age where uh, they still liked us. Um, arguably, they still idolised us. You know, I was still superhero dad. Yeah, yeah. Right? If you go when they're a bit later, education's different because they're following a curriculum. So you've got some challenges around that. But there are also those horrible things called teenagers with hormones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we met some of those out in the world who were ruining their parents' experiences. <laughs> you know, we met a family who went to Machu Picchu for the day and had a horrible time because their 13-year-old son decided that was a day he was just going to be a little SHIT, right? So <laughs> that, that was their experience. Um, so we didn't have that. With, with younger kids, will they remember it? How much, depends how young they are. So how much paraphernalia are you going to have to carry with you? Yeah. You know, are you carrying nappies? Are you carrying feeding? Are you, you know, having to cope with all those early childhood illnesses? I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying ask yourself the question why. Yeah, it comes back to why, doesn't it, really? Yeah, Yeah, you're doing it for you, for them. Yeah. Yeah. So Simon Simon Sinek teaches something called the golden circle. Right. So it doesn't matter whether you're in business or not. There's a there's a TED talk on YouTube, which is the most watched TED talk on YouTube. Okay. Uh, And if you type uh, Simon Sinek, S-I-N-E-K, start with the Y or golden circle, you'll find it. And he talks about the fact that people's the three levels to the circle, there's why in the middle, then there's how, and then there's what. And most people start with the what rather than the why, right? So if you think about taking your kids around the world for a year, our what was, oh, we'd like to go to China to see panda bears, or we'd like to go to Australia, right, Uh, see kangaroos. Our how was, I wonder if you can get around the world ticket for families and, you know, how we do it, where we would stay, all that sort of stuff. But our why was the important bit. Yeah, It was about connecting ourselves as a family. And eight months into our year, we were in Queensland and Australia's climate, as I think we all know now, is pretty extreme. So we, a few weeks previously, we'd been in Victoria, so down south in Melbourne, and they had the Victoria bushfires, which until last winter were the most fatal bushfires in Australian history. We then went up to Queensland and we got a camper van in New South Wales and Sydney, and we were driving up to Cairns. And I've done the got, same, actually. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, we only got halfway because 60% of Queensland was underwater. Mad. Right? Crazy. So, you know, bushfires in the south, um, 
And Queensland, ironically, was was officially in drought. Yeah, sixty percent of the country was underwater. I've never quite understood that. It's crazy. Uh, so we only got halfway, uh, and to a place called Rockhampton, and we had to stop. We just couldn't go any further. But we still had the camper van, and we had another two or three weeks of it. So we just stopped for a few days, and then we turned around and we went back to the places that we'd bombed past on the way up. <laughs> Yeah, we enjoyed them. That, yeah, we thought that the, the sexy stuff, the, the, the nature stuff, was up in tropical Queensland, and it probably was. Um, but we went back to the surf coast, and we spent a week just playing in the waves with bodyboards. And it was arguably the best week of the whole year. Yeah. Because we were just being a family. And meanwhile, you lot, it was February, you lot were in 2009, February 2009, in a recession, shivering in the winter, and we were just splashing in the bathwater of Queensland. <laughs> and I just thought, this is why we're doing this thing. This is our why. So, yeah, think, connect with you, understand your why, connect with it, and the rest will follow. That's beautiful, Ian. Thank you very much. And if people want to get your book, what's the best place to do it? Obviously, there's yeah. Amazon. Um, is there any better way uh, for you? Yeah, so um, if people would like a signed copy, if they'd like to go to familytrippers.co.uk, they can get a signed copy there, uh, and I'll get up, get that out to them. Uh, alternative, uh, uh, and if they'd like the audio book, so if they'd like not heard enough of my Scottish brawl, uh, <laughs> then uh, uh, they can get the audio book there as well. But to get hold of the paperback or the ebook, then at the moment it's Amazon. Yeah, we are going through a process to go get it in local bookshops, which is where I'd much rather it was. Um, but that with with COVID, the company that does that, it's taking forever. Uh, so right now, if you just put "Are we there yet?" and Ian Pillbeam into Amazon, I guess you'll share the link as well, Matty. But that will yeah. that will be there, and is obviously easy to get. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Ian. This has been really good for me. Um, I really enjoyed the chat and I think that's one of the good things about this podcast for me is meeting new people and, and just getting to talk about obviously one of your favourite things, one of my favourite things is travel and seeing the world. So it's, it's great being great to connect. My absolute pleasure. I think, you know, we're, we're both passionate about travel and the world. Uh, so having the opportunity to, to talk with you about my experiences, but also, you know, your, your great questions has been an absolute joy. So thanks very much for having me. You have been listening to episode 22 of Travel Bubble. Are we there yet? With me, Matty Dias, and my guest, Ian Pillbeam. If you love that episode as much as I did, go and share it on Facebook. Go and share it on Instagram. Go and send it on your WhatsApp groups and tell the world about um, Ian Pillbeam and Are We There Yet? and Travel Bubble. Like I said, we are actually giving away a signed copy of Ian Pillbeam's book. So if you do love travel, you love reading, and maybe you've got a family and you want to um, travel the world as well and you want to get some inspiration, or if you just want to read some funny stories in Ian's book that he elicited elicited to in the episode, then check out our social media and we'll be showing how to enter that competition on there. But yeah, I really like this episode. I think it's so inspirational. Like you see, you might have that money in the bank or you might think, oh, I'll put that away for rainy day for a ready day but what like Ian says what if you don't make it to that age what happens then you've got all that money left and you've 
you've not done anything. So he took a big risk, I'd say. He quit his job before a recession. He took his kids out of school. And he, like he said in the in the interview, he invested in those as, in themselves by going on this round-the-world trip. And it's all worked out in the wash. He's doing really well. His kids are global citizens now. And... I think he took the took it taking that plunge has really changed the whole family's his whole family's life for for in a positive way. So I hope you've got some travel inspiration from Ian on this episode. But now I will jump into the famous Travel Bubble Film Club. And this week I was inspired by Ian talking about Peru and I thought why not watch a Peruvian film and share that with you. So that's exactly what I did. This week's film of the week is Cancion Sin Nombre, or Song Without a Name, which is a Peruvian film from 2019. I'll read out the brief description. Georgina Condori is a heavily pregnant Andean peasant woman living in a burr wooden shack in a coastal shanty town close to the capital, Lima. Lured into the city by a radio advert promising free medical assistance, she gives birth to her baby at a downtown clinic. The staff take her newborn daughter away, apparently for routine checks, but never return her. So, from that description, you know it's, hard, it's going to be hardly be a, be a barrel of laughs. It's a bit of a bleak, um, disturbing film, but it's beautifully shot, and I really appreciated it. And, like I said, it, it's a Peruvian film, and I think you should you should check it out. And it's based on true events as well. So it's not just made up. This these kind of things were happening back then, in like the late eighties in Peru. It's um, it's horrible, but check that out. You can watch it on Mubi, uh, M U B I. And if you do want to uh, uh, go on Mubi, go to my social media and, and get the link through there, and you'll get a thirty day free trial. So you could sign up, watch Cancion Sin Nombre, and cancel, uh, but you won't cancel because because Mubi is pretty good. But that's it for this week on Travel Bubble. Like I say, don't forget to give us those ratings, like, share, comment, subscribe. It all helps. And don't forget to keep an eye out on our social media for that competition to win Ian Pilbeam's book, signed copy of Are We There Yet? I've been Matty Dias. My guest has been Ian Pilbeam. You've been listening and you've been wonderful. And I'll see you again next time. Goodbye.